Well, it's, uh, it's good to see you today. Welcome. If you're a guest, I'm David. I'm the pastor. We're glad you're here. Um, spring, I think, starts either today or tomorrow, something like that. Spring break has started, which is amazing that you can go a whole year without school and still have spring break. Why didn't they do that when I was in the younger? I'd have loved that. We're just glad you're here. Uh, you're always welcome. Anything we have going on. Uh, two weeks is uh, Easter, April 4th. And uh, we're having, we're adding our 12:15 service. Let me just tell you this: this service will be the single most crowded service of all four. Uh, two years ago, we had over 300 people here. So you may, you know, somebody, especially if you come a lot and you have the flexibility in your schedule with lunch and all that, maybe you can help us out. Go to the 12:15 service. That would be great. Um, and then after. Uh, Easter's over. We're going to keep the 1215 service because this service is filling up and the 11 o'clock service is filling up. A lot of you online want to come back. Uh, 1215 is kind of the one where we'll have more social distancing. Obviously, we don't have any in this and 11 o'clock. So if that's, you want some more of that, that's, that's what we have it for. So we'd love to have you then. We're in a series that started two weeks ago called The Cross of Christ. Jesus on the cross, and God raised him back from the dead after he was there. But our series, The Cross of Christ, goes all the way through uh, April and uh, through all of that. And uh, what I said two weeks ago when I started this series, I made this statement that for the follower of Jesus, everything comes back to the cross. For the follower of Jesus, it's us, me. Everything comes back to the cross. It does. Everything Jesus did, by the way, was in preparation for the cross. And everything the early church did, the followers did, was the result of the cross. It all comes back to the cross. And I added a statement last week that's uh, really equally important that we need to realize, especially in the world and the culture we live in, where so many people are trying to do something to take away from Christianity or to change it up. Even within the Christian church, people are saying, we need to get rid of the cross. It's offensive. It's this or that. Listen, you cannot separate the cross from Christianity. You cannot take the cross out of our faith. It's just not possible. We have seen so far the centrality of the cross. Last week, we began kind of a little three-week subset of our series in the book of Romans, from Romans 4.25 through Romans 5.11, and uh, we looked at our, uh, the reason for the cross. Today, we come to Romans chapter 5, verse 6, 7, and 8, and look at the heart of the cross. What is the heart of the cross? And I use the term heart in, in the biblical sense this way. In, in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, the heart was the place where decisions were made. It was not the place of emotion. It was the place where you made the decisions. And so when we get to the passage in a few minutes, but this is what I want you to see from the sermon today at the heart of the cross. That is the decision for Jesus to die on the cross. At that is God's love for us. The heart of all of that. The decision God made for Jesus at the cross is simply because God loves us. And so I'm going to begin the message today asking this question, how do I know God loves me? How do I really know God's love me? Now, you know, being in the church all my life, I know the church answer for that question. The church answer for that question is the Bible tells us that, and it does, and it's true. I also know the church answer for that question is John 3.16. That immediately comes to mind. At the end of January, in that series that I preached about the one who makes sense of it all, the last sermon was about God's love, John 3.16, God loves us. And yeah, I really, you know, one of the things I have to realize is that for a lot of people, for a lot of you people watching, if you didn't grow up in the church, or if you're just starting church, or if you're not a follower of Christ, that church answer may not really make sense. You need more than that church answer, and I get that. In, in fact, to be honest, I never really thought of it this way much before, but I need more than that, just that church answer. I need more than just the Bible says so. See, and to really understand this and to get this, we need to go back to the beginning of things. And most of the things we deal with, most of our doctrines, most of our teachings, most of the questions, most of the struggles we have, if we will just go back to the beginning, that's the place that we can see how things go. Go back to the book of Genesis. 
In the first three chapters of Genesis, really everything is kind of set out for us and laid out for us that everything else in Scripture comes from, even the cross. And in the first chapter, God begins to reveal some things to us. Here's the amazing thing about God. Everything we can know about God, we can know because he tells us. He reveals to us. He doesn't reveal to us everything there is to know, just what he wants us to know. Whether we take advantage of that or not is one thing, but he gives it. And in the first chapter, he tells us he created everything. There was nothing, and then he created it. All there was was God. He created something from nothing, and he began to create the animals. He created fish. He created birds. You know, he, he made all the animals, and then he made us, and he made us different than them. When it got to man, God did something remarkable. He created us in his image, and then it says he created us in his likeness, male and female. It's an amazing statement. He created a man in his image. None of the other things in creation were made in his image. Not only that, but he distinguished us by being either male or female, which in, <laughs> could preach a whole couple of sermons that might end some conversations, I would hope, about the world we live in today. But I don't know if that would help him or not, but that's there. Now, you just think about the, all the other things he created. He created by species, like different kinds of them. For instance, some of you go catch fish. I got you. You come up to me and said, I caught a fish. I might say, what kind of fish did you catch? Trout, bass. Catfish, store-bought, what'd you catch, you know? <laughs> or you may say, hey, look up, there's a bird. What kind of bird? It's a hawk. What kind of hawk? Red hawk, tomahawk, some sort of hawk that's up in the sky. <laughs> got a dog. You know, just think about it. You come up to me and say, we got a new dog. I'm going to say, what kind of dog did you get? Man, we, know we have chihuahuas, yeah. But if you come up to me and say, I got a new kid, I'm not going to say, what kind of kid did you get? Human, we think. Some concern. There's a couple of kids in Upstreet right now that we're, we need to figure that out. No, you tell me. I say, what is it? Boy or girl? And you're going to tell me if you got a boy or a girl. Why? Because we understand it is intrinsic within us that we are separated by male and female because we're created in the image of God. And the amazing thing about being created in the image of God, to be created in his image, and this is, this, this is an amazing thing. There's several th- aspects of it, but the one that I care about for this message is that I can have a relationship with God. To be created in the image of God means we are created to relate to God and to relate to one another. And to relate to one another as male and female to complete each other and complement each other. I mean, he made us this way. It's an amazing thing. And to make us this way, to be in his image then means this. We have a moral capability. We can make moral decisions. We have moral thoughts. We are moral beings. Our animals aren't that way. And I know, I know our animals love us. I got two little chihuahuas. I know they love us. I got it. And I know we love them. And my wife will be at the 11 o'clock service. She loves the dogs more than she loves me. I've dealt with that. <laughs> Guys, I know you think when the kids leave, I'm number one. No. The dog, the cat, the goldfish rakes ahead of you. It doesn't matter what you have. And I know they have emotions, but it's not the same. They are not free moral beings. And to be a moral being means we have freedom. We have freedom to make decisions. And in that freedom that God has given us is the freedom to reject him. And that's what we do. We reject God. It goes back to Genesis 3. We decide we want to be like God. That was the temptation. And so with all this, there's another realization that from this moment on, from the moment of conception, not birth, by the way, but conception, we are humans and we live forever. Now, we know physically we're going to die, but we also know inherently there's something beyond death. Everybody, well, you should know it. I mean, most people, some people deny that they know it, but but we know that there's something in us that tells us that. And here's the cool thing, and this is important because it helps us from this point forward. While we may now live forever, we have not lived forever. 
See, here's the thing. I'm going to live forever, but I haven't lived forever. See, I'm not the creator. I'm the created. I was created by God because God decided to create me to be in relationship with me, to bless him, I'm for, to bless us, and to love us, and that we might experience that blessing and love. But our sin messes that up. Because what we do is we rebel against God. And we take our freedom and we give it away. And we become slaves. And we take ourselves and we put on the shackles, the cuffs of slavery to sin and death. And we've lost that freedom. See, well, I have the freedom to reject God. I don't have the freedom to change my mind and go back to him. I become a slave. Romans says this, we're sinners. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned. Fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of that sin is death. Now, if you were to keep reading in chapter 5, beyond verse, 20, beyond verse 11, you would see that Paul begins to talk about Adam. And that when Adam came, sin entered the world. And we have this understanding that, that Adam's sin, that disposition, that nature to sin is within us. But just because the nature to sin is within us doesn't excuse us. See, we're not held accountable for Adam's sin. And Adam isn't held accountable for my sin. I am held accountable for my sin because I have chosen to rebel against God. I made that decision. We saw last week that we call that those transgressions, those sins against God. Which brings us then to Romans 6. I mean, Romans 5, verse 6. And verse 6 says this. It's pretty cool. For we were still helpless at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time. When the timing was right. Everything's always, by the way, on God's timing. It's not on my timing. I wish God would work on my timing. That'd be nice if God considered my timing. It didn't my timing. It's on his timing. And the timing has to do with when he was ready. And in the midst of being ready, it also reminds us that we were helpless or powerless or weak. That's not physically powerless. It's morally powerless. We're created moral beings. And we are powerless morally. We are so given ourselves to sin and we're saturated with sin because we're slaves to that sin. You know, I love people, people love to talk about free will. You don't hear me talk about free will very often unless I'm referencing somebody who talks about free will. I talk about freedom. See, the concept we have of free will is this idea that I have free will, that I can run away from God whenever I want, but I can run back to God whenever I want, and you don't have that freedom. See, once you're a slave to sin, you no longer have the freedom or the capability to come to God. You gave that up when you made yourself a slave to sin. It takes God to do that. God can free you. When we were still helpless in all of that sin, Christ died for the ungodly. That would be us, the ones rebelling. The word for is important. And there's those little prepositions. I told you this last week. Little prepositions are important. That word for means in behalf of or in place of or on behalf of. It carries the idea of substitution. That Jesus died in my place. Now, some people reject the idea of substitution. There are people in Christianity that reject the idea of substitution. You reject a lot of what Paul teaches. <laughs> you reject a lot of what the Gospels teach because the Scriptures clearly indicate that I deserve to die for my sin. In this verse right here, and the Greek grammars indicate that that word for means he died in my place. He died for me. Now, naturally, verse 6 would probably go to verse 8, but it's as if in verse 7, Paul has the thought. So in verse 7, uh, Paul writes this, one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good person, someone would dare even to die. I mean, the word righteous and good are not used in biblical sense or spiritual sense, but in their normal sense. A righteous person was someone who was upright, who did the things they were supposed to do. 
Now, a person who was upright, who if they fell into hard times or difficult times, and they, they did everything they were supposed to do, and, and they needed someone to die for them. And remember, the whole purpose of Christ's death is substitution. He died in our place on our behalf. Well, no one is just going to die for just anyone, even if they're really righteous. You're not going to die for someone because they're upstanding. I mean, it's not in our human nature. I'm, I'm not doing that. Even for a good person, a good person is someone who is just warm, kind, they go beyond being just righteous. Paul says, maybe, maybe, maybe for a good person. I wouldn't. Now, there's only two people that I would die. Well, three. I'll add a third in this service. My wife and my daughter. And then my mother-in-law watches the 945 service, so I'll add my mother-in-law. <laughs> but at 830 and 11, she ain't being added. <laughs> That's it. Nobody else. I'm not going to die for any of you. I'm not, I'm not talking about soldiers. I get that's different. Or the police. I'm talking about you're about to die, and I'm going to substitute for you. Now, listen, if you're about to die, and you need me to take your place, you better be right with God, because you're about to meet him. That's just the way it is. And, and my, yeah, my wife, sure. Yeah, and, and there are times even that, you know, when, when she irritates me. I'm like, every time that Amazon package keeps coming every day, I'm like, come on, seriously. But in all truth, we wouldn't do that. But think about God. We're rebelling against God. We, we are in opposition to God, slaves to sins. And verse 8 says this. But God demonstrates his own love for us. And while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. But God, but God, but God is always different. It's amazing how many verses begin, but God. <laughs> Compared to man, but God. The word demonstrates means to show, to prove. His own, the one he possesses, his love. Now, the word of love, the word agape, and, and back when I preached in John 3, 16, I spent a great deal of time dealing with agape. I'm not going to go back and do that. If you need to get all that, go watch it online or on YouTube. But, but the word agape is, is really rarely used outside of the New Testament, maybe once or twice. It's, its impact is given from the New Testament. It's a love without boundary. It's an unconditional love. It is a self-sacrificing love. It is the love that you give to someone. It's a giving of self for the benefit of the other. It's amazing. The word for love, agape, and the word for faith or belief or trust, pistis, pistuo, in the Greek are very similar. They both speak of a giving over. Faith or belief or trust is giving over for your benefit in terms of salvation. I'm going to give myself over to someone and trust them that they're going to save me. Love, agape, is I'm going to give myself over to someone completely for their benefit. It's the same concepts of two beautiful words that are so important to our faith. God showed just how much he loved us while we were still sinning, yet sinning. It literally, it means we were in the very process of sinning. When Jesus died, <laughs> there were people sinning all around him. You know, Pilate sinned and giving him over. The Jewish leaders sinned. You know, the, the people were mocking him, cursing him, making fun of him, ridiculing the two thieves that hung next to him. So they were all sinning. In fact, a year ago, I preached a series called Seven, the Seven Statements of Jesus on the Cross. Where the pandemic hit right out a year ago this Sunday that we had to uh, meet online for a while. But I began that. I began that series with Jesus in, in, in Luke 23. The very first thing he said is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. God, they're in the process of sinning right now. For this sin, forgive them. God, while we were still in the process of sinning, he sent Jesus not to live. No, no. He didn't simply send Jesus to die. He sent Jesus to die 
for us. He sent him to die. Christ died for us. It's an amazing thing when you think about it. So understand it this way. Maybe this will help you. God decided to show us the full capacity of his love in sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. God made a decision. God says he still has free moral will. God can make decisions that you and I can't make. And the decision he made was that we would experience the full capacity, listen, of a love that has no limits. The love of God has no limits. And somehow, as only God can do it, in a paradox of paradox, God showed us the full capacity of a love that has no capacity. When Jesus came into this world, not simply to live, but to die. In my place. And in my behalf. He died for you and he died for me. This is the heart of God's love. This is the heart of who he is. And, and we struggle with that sometimes. And I, and I guess I get why we can struggle with it. Because it's so out of character to how we think. And how we feel and how we live. But here's the thing to realize. God did this not because of us, but for us. In other words, there was nothing about us that moved God. It wasn't because we deserved it or we earned it. It was not because of us, but it was for us, for our benefit. And he loves us, even though we reject him in our thoughts and actions. Think about how many times in your life you have thought things about God that were absolutely rebellious. Times you've been angry with God, times that you've cursed God, Times that you've rejected God. Maybe right now you're in a position in your life where you completely reject God. You want nothing to do with God. You don't even believe in God. You're just here for whatever. Someone drug you here. Or you're just starting off your spiritual journey and you have all these questions. And you don't know if you believe all the Bible. And you don't know if you believe in the creation. And that flood thing messes you up. And you have all this stuff. Even in your thoughts, God loves you. In all your actions, your greed, your lifestyle. Your profaneness, the way you've destroyed people's lives, all your actions. He still loves you. So I come back to the question, how do I know God loves me? I know God loves me because he sent his son Jesus to die in my place. I know he loves me because he sent his son Jesus Not to just live, not to just die, but to die in my place and on my behalf. That's how I know. God loves me. Which brings me then to this, a heart for what matters. God has a heart for what matters, so do we. And we matter to God. Why wouldn't we matter to God? He created us in his image. Why do we have this idea that because we sin? Or because we reject God, that somehow God's going to stop loving us. You know, being a parent, you know, is, is an amazing thing. And, you know, and, and parents, and listen, whenever I use parental analogies, I know there's some breakdowns. There, some of you have had lousy parents. Like, there are some lousy, horrible parents, and I get that. Some of you may have had a lousy parent, maybe a lousy mom, maybe a lousy dad. For all I know, some of you may be a lousy parent. I don't know. But for the most part, we understand that parents always love their kids. Always, even from the moment they're born, their life changed. We've had, we've had a couple little kids born into our, our connect group recently. And the little things, and here's the thing we know about even when they're little, we love them, but they irritate us all over the place. You know those things? They don't understand three in the morning you sleep. They don't care. And you can't talk to them about it. You can't bribe them. You, your whole life is lived in response to what they want. They're so selfish. 
And then they become the terrible twos, which is a complete misnomer, because the terrible twos lay way beyond two. I don't know, 20s, 30s, they're terrible the whole time. <laughs> and then teenagers, oh my goodness. Think of this irony. Here is this 16-year-old living in your house, sponging off your money. You buy them the car, you let them live, and they have the audacity to think they're smarter than you are. Little ungrateful little things. I love them. God, I don't know why. And then, and then, and then, and then sometimes this happens. It's sad. They become college or maybe young adult, and they begin just to reject everything you believe in, and reject everything you stand for. I understand that. Been there, done that. Still love them. And you may say, "Hey, come back," and you may talk to them. You may plead with them, and they just may completely reject you and even curse you. And if you really love your kids, your true parent, you always say to them, I love you. And you can always come home. I have two messages. I have a, several times I have preached that message. It, it, family. On Mother's Day of all times. Oh, yes. Have all the moms weeping and crying when it's over. You can always come home. If you and I have that capacity, don't you think God has that capacity far beyond what we can imagine? To love us, though we're spoiled, selfish, ungrateful, rebellious. Part of the problem we have is we fall prey to these traps that are put out by people who are completely rebellious themselves about God. I I call it the the how and the why trap. How could I follow a God? Why would God do all these things? And, 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 And we do that. You know, I said earlier, all we know about God is what God's revealed himself to us. And yet somehow we put ourselves in a position to judge God, think about what God should do. Some people think back 3,500 years ago. I hear this sometimes. 3,500 years ago when the Israelites were about to enter the promised land and God said, wipe out all the Israelites. And I hear people today, 3,500 years later, say, well, how could I ever love a God who did that? Well, how? you don't even know what's going on. You weren't there. You don't know the circumstances. Do you realize that those pagans that he judged had for centuries, hundreds of years, completely, totally rejected him. They had taken the earth and they built little altars with the earth and rocks. And then they would take pieces of wood and, 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 and stone and maybe get some metal. And they would fashion these little gods that looked like them. And they acted like them in their minds. And they worshiped them. They bowed down. They do all these things to them. And when the gods and goddesses that they created that didn't exist, didn't give them what they want, here's what they would do. They would take those little infant children of theirs and they would lay them on the altar. And they would take a knife and they would plunge it in that child's heart. To sacrifice that child to those gods. And sometimes they wouldn't even do that. Sometimes they'd take that crying, screaming little baby and in, honor to, in an effort to honor their gods or goddesses, they would throw that baby into a fire and burn that baby alive. And after several hundred years, God said, enough's enough. And yet we have the audacity to question God as being loving. And then we come to today and those same people will look at the world around us and they say, all this evil, this evil that's caused by us. We cause the evil. And then they'll say, why won't God do something about it? Well, when God did something about it 3,500 years ago, you were ticked off. And then you turn right around and say, God, you're to blame for all this evil. And we use that as a reason to reject God. So here's the question I want to ask you. Why do you, reje- why do you risk an eternity separated from God for events and actions you have no involvement in or control over. 
Think how silly that is. You had no involvement in what happened 3,500 years ago. Why are you going to reject God through that? And the evil that exists in the world, it's not your fault. None of you are to blame for the evil that exists in the world today. So why are you going to reject God for something you have no involvement in or control over? And risk it. For all eternity, on the other hand, we choose to rebel against God and say, God, we want to live our life however we want. I'm free, God, and I don't want you. And God, I love power, and I love money, and I'm going to pursue all the money and power I could get no matter who I trample over, no matter what it costs me. And yeah, God, I know that I'm going to sacrifice my family along the way, and I'm going to maybe sacrifice two families along the way, and people may be miserable along the way, but it doesn't matter, God, because this is what I want. Or you say, hey, God, I know I'm created in your image, and I know you made me male and female, but God, I know there's certain expectations you have, but I want to live my life my way. I want my lifestyle to reflect me and what I want, and I'm just going to do anything I want, God, and if you don't like it, tough. And when your life is messed up and broken and miserable, you wonder why God doesn't love you. We live our lives rebelling against God because we choose to. So why do you risk an eternity separated from God for events and actions, get this, you have involvement in and control over? You, you made those decisions. You're blaming God. You're that way because you chose to be that way. You can't unchoose it. I get it. But you're blaming God for that. And you say, God, I'm not going to trust you. I'm not going to love you. I'm not going to come to you because of what I've done. It makes no sense. Some of you are there. That describes some of you. Some of you who are watching, that, that's you. You look at all these things. Say, I'm not going to come to God because of this. And I'm not going to trust Jesus because of that. And I'm not going to become a follower for all these things. And you miss the most important thing of all, that God loves you. You see, here's the thing. The very fact that God loves you, even in your rebellion, should be the deciding factor in following Jesus. The fact that he loves you in all your rebellion should be the deciding factor in following Jesus. You know, Paul, sometimes we forget just, how much Paul knew people and how in tune he was. In the book of Romans, he realized that these people who he had never met before, most of them were followers of Christ, but that his message was going to be read to other people. And he understood, he's laying out this unbelievable doctrine. He's laying out this unbelievable theology. But at the end of the day, Paul needs to make it simple. He needs to make it so simple. So Romans 10, 9 and 10, this is what he writes. So in the New Living Translation. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, if you openly declare that he is Lord and believe in your heart, God raising from the dead, you'll be saved. I mean, it, 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 you, if you declare he's Lord, you say, he didn't say if you openly declare that you believe everything that was written in the Bible and that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, you know, inspired word of God. He didn't say that. He didn't say, listen, if, if you will declare to everyone that you believe in seven literal days of creation. That's not what he said. He said, if you declare that Jesus is Lord, that's it. And believe in your heart, have faith, have trust in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Not, not you, have to, you have to believe in your heart in the Ten Commandments and follow them and say that. Or you have to, you have to be baptized. And, and no, he said, you just believe the resurrection. You'll be saved. 
For it's by believing in your heart, you're made right with God. And it's by declaring your faith that you're saved. Paul said it's not that complicated. It's not, it's not that difficult. We have made it that way. But the heart of God isn't that way. The heart of God is a God that loves you and sent Jesus for you. And you can know that by the cross. And what God asks of you, it's not that you fix all your theology because you can't fix it yet. It's not that you get all your life in order because you can't get it in order because you're slaves to sin. He just says, trust me by trusting Jesus. So I want to ask you this question. If God has a heart for you, why don't you have a heart for God? Why don't you just say, God, I know I've messed it all up, and I can't fix it, but I know you can. God, I know you love me. So if you know God loves you, why don't you trust him with your life? If you're watching him online, why don't you just trust him right now? If I was to ask you to do this, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this at all, but if I was to ask you, if you know you need to trust Jesus as your Savior, would you raise your hand? Don't do it. But if I was to ask you to do that, if you'd raise your hand, then why don't you just trust him anyway? You don't have to understand everything. Man, you don't even have to believe it all. But you have to take your life, give it to Jesus. God loves you. He loves you. That's why Jesus came. The heart of the cross is God's love for you. So why don't you trust Jesus to be your Savior? Some of you today need to do that right now. Just give your life to Christ in just a minute. Well, some of us will be standing up here, and if you want to talk to us about that, come talk to us. And ladies, I think if, if you uh, need to talk to a lady, there'll be a lady up here, and she'll talk to you. If you want us to pray with you for someone else or for yourself, we'll pray with you. If you want to join our church, you can join our church. Listen, I, I don't know what to tell you to do today, but I know this. Be sure, be sure when you leave this place, you have a heart for what matters. That you have a heart for God. So, Father, we thank you and we love you. And we praise you. Because you sent Jesus when you didn't have to. Because we're rebelling against you. And you sent him to love us and to show us your love. And you sent him on that cross. And when Jesus the Nazarene died on that cross, he died in David's place and he died on David's behalf. Because you knew that one day David would be in rebellion. And David would need to be saved. And that's true of every one of us. So God let us in faith trust you. Trust your love and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We'll greet you. You come.